Welcome to the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, this is The Power of Lies. And then I'll hand over to our chair, Joanna Cavena, who can introduce the panel um, and the event this evening. Thank you. Hello, good evening. Thank you for coming. Um, this debate, The Power of Lies, is the second in a three-part series at the Forum for European Philosophy in conjunction with the Institute of Art and Ideas. Um, and this whole series is a sort of prequel to this year's How the Light Gets In Festival, um, which is at Hay. Um, it's the biggest in the world, the biggest philosophy festival in the world, and it's at Hay in late May um, and early June. And the theme of this year's How the Light Gets In Festival is Error, Lies and Adventure. So in this series at the LSE, we've already heard from Hilary Lawson um, about the loss of faith in objective truth. Um, and so this debate really is looking at the other side of the spectrum. If you've lost your faith or you're severely questioning your faith in a single ultimate truth, then what does that do to your notion of lies? Um, and what further implications might that have for morality or for society or for your sense of self? Um, and so to discuss this, we have a very distinguished panel. We have Jamie White who is a regular political commentator. He's head of research at Oliver Wyman Financial Services. He's also worked as a management consultant and a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Cambridge. Um, and his books attack crimes against logic. Um, so, and they include bad thoughts and a load of Blair. And we have Hilary Lawson, who's a postmodern philosopher and the author of Closure, which is a return to metaphysics. Um, and he's also director of the Institute of Art and Ideas and founder of the How the Light Gets In Festival. And we also have Parashkev Nachev, who's a senior clinical research associate in neurology at UCL. And he focuses on the neural basis for voluntary action. Um, and he's also worked in collaboration with the Oxford philosopher Peter Hacker on the conceptual analysis of neuroscientific thought, the terms that he used in discussing it. Um, so the debate will take the form of a brief speech by each um, speaker on a question that I'll, I'll present in a moment. And then there'll be a general debate um, through three themes, which we'll turn to, and then questions from the audience. And the question is, which our speakers have four minutes only to respond to initially, um, the question is, should we embrace lies as a necessary part of being human. And I'll start with Jamie White to begin. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, lies are a part of being human, but I, I won't, I'm not sure if they're necessary, but we certainly shouldn't embrace them. And that's because the convention of honesty uh, is incredibly important to society, to the smooth functioning of society, by which I really mean a society in which people have the best chance of getting what they want. Uh, because when you lie... Uh, you are attempting, or at least achieving, you're thwarting people's goals. So let me explain uh, with a simple example. Uh, now, this won't endear me to many of you, but I often ask my wife where my shirts are. They, they move around the house. I don't know where they are. Where's my pink shirt, I might say. Now, suppose she says, <clears throat> it's in the dryer. Well, I'm going to go to the dryer to find it. And if it's not there... Well, then I've wasted my time. I've got to look around again. She's thwarting me. She, now, we'll come back later. I won't discuss now why she might have good reason to thwart me. But uh, anyway, she is thwarting me. And that's 
the problem with lying. We all depend on other people for our, to navigate the world, to get an enormous amount of the information which we require to get by in life. Uh, take another example, a, a, menu, a menu at a restaurant. I want to I eat a steak. I see it says steak on the menu. I order the steak. I've got, I'm relying on the fact that when they say steak, they mean steak, and I understand what's going on, and they're telling me the truth. If you took this away, society would more or less collapse. It, it is crucially important. Now, I missed uh, both. I missed historically, and I missed last week or whenever it was, uh, the, the idea that there's no more objective truth. I, I believe there is objective truth. And what matters when we're listening to other people, by and large, is whether or not we can rely on them. Now, relying on people has two elements, only one of which is honesty. If I'm trying to judge whether I should rely on what you say, whether I should base my actions on it, because right, I want it to be an accurate description of the world if I'm going to base my actions on it, I'm going to make two judgments about you. Are your beliefs likely to be true? So what you actually believe, are you likely to come to arrive at true opinions about the world? And then are you likely to be honest? So are the things you say really stating your actual beliefs? So you can honestly say something that isn't true, but that's only because you don't believe the truth. So I'm going to make two judgments about you. Now, this varies enormously between people and on subjects. So some people are very reliable on subjects, some subjects not so reliable on others. Uh, for example, you know people don't tend to be quite so reliable when they're talking about themselves. Uh, they, they both are more inclined to come to false beliefs about themselves, and they're also inclined to uh, misrepresent what they believe, know about themselves. And it varies between cultures as well. Uh, subcultures within cultures, in, in the same culture over time it varies. And when you have a, don't have a convention of truth-telling, of honesty, it's incredibly expensive for a society. People can't rely on each other, and it drives up the cost of doing business, as I'll broadly call it. But I don't just mean commercial business. I mean any kind of interaction. It heaps huge costs on us. Uh, and in fact, commerce, though unpopular these days, actually is a great encourager of honesty because it imposes a penalty on the dishonest. If you are trying to do business, especially if you want to do it over the long run, uh, you need to be honest because if you get a reputation for not being honest, nobody wants to do business with you. And I think it's very important that outside of business, we also in impose costs on people who don't habitually tell the truth. Uh, through the old-fashioned processes of things like social stigma. So we, we do tend to do that. Uh, if you know somebody is unreliable, you shun them. You don't listen to what they say. Uh, this is all makes perfectly good sense. It's all old-fashioned. Uh, it's all premised on, on there being such a thing as objective truth and reality. But, of course, uh, that's, I, I think it's almost impossible to understand what's wrong with lying. Uh, it's impossible to understand how we interact with each other and how we listen to what each other is saying and how we judge each other if you don't believe in an objective reality. Right? If I thought there was no objective reality, then I wouldn't care what it says on the menu. And I would have steak, right? If, if, it's, if there's nothing like if steak doesn't really exist or the word steak could mean anything, well, then I'd be completely lost. So it is, if you look at people's actual practices, even the people who say they don't believe in objective reality or objective truth, you can tell that they do by the way they behave, by the way they, they condemn people who are unreliable, by the way they check the reliability of people, by the way they go about their business. Later on, I believe I'm going to get an opportunity to talk about the ethics of lying. Uh, so I'll leave it there because I think that you'll hopefully I'll be able to explain to you later why 
this way of seeing why we value honesty and what honesty really is and how, how it's as a virtue it's connected to the truth. Right? You, you only care about honesty and people insofar as you want them to be reliable indicators of what's real in the world. Once you understand those terms, you can see why it is sometimes moral to lie. Uh, this actually explains why it's sometimes moral to lie, but I'll, I'll leave that to later. Thank you. Um, so now we'll turn to Hilary Lawson again to answer the question, should we embrace lies as a necessary part of being human? Well, interesting what Jamie had to say there. Um, uh, he and I disagree fundamentally about objective truth, as any of you who came, across, came along to the first uh, event in this series will know, I'm a radical non-realist. I think the, the language and thought is incapable <coughs> of enabling us to arrive at some, <coughs> some objective truth about the world. But I do not think that means that we can say whatever we want, or indeed I do not think that that means that there's no such thing as lying or indeed of telling the truth. And the reason for that is because I also profoundly disagree with Jamie that lying has nothing, I think, to do with truth and falsity, or almost nothing. That's why it's possible, as he indicated, to say something which is a lie, but which is in fact true. It's also possible to say something honestly, which is false. I mean, imagine we have someone who calls into work with a sickie. There they are, they call in, they say, I'm very ill today, I can't come into work. Actually, they're planning to have an adventure with their new girlfriend. So it's a lie. But let's suppose that, in fact, unbeknown to them, they have a um, terminal illness, a, uh, a, a sort of early form of cancer. So what they've said on the phone is at least socially agreed to be true. I am very ill today. But it doesn't stop it being a lie. And that's because lying is not about what, how the world is. Lying is about our relationship to our own expression. It's about whether we hold what we are saying as true. Not whether it is true, but whether we hold it as true. And when we lie, we therefore pretend to hold something as true, which it isn't. Now, when we tell the truth, of course, we are simply saying things as we hold them. So whether um, Tony Blair was lying when he was talking about weapons of mass destruction has nothing to do with whether we found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. It's not relevant to the question. The question is whether when he gave us the impression that he thought that there were weapons of mass destruction, that that was an accurate picture of how he was holding the world. So that's the first thing. Lies are not the same thing as truth and falsity, and therefore you can hold a position, as I do, that there is no objective truth, and yet still uh, adhere to the notion that there can be a clear sense of lies and honesty. Now, 
Where I do agree with Jamie is that I also want to argue that honesty is something that I want to advocate. Why do I want to advocate it? Well, I want to advocate it because when we communication relies on our sharing of the way that we hold the world. When I talk to you, I'm encouraging you to hold the world in the way that I'm saying. So I'm, I'm trying to inveigle you into my closures, as I would put it. Have a look at it like this. And in doing that, you are able to share that space and intervene in the world on the basis of the way that I've shared it with you. But if I'm lying to you, you're not able to share my space because I'm not offering you my space. <laughs> I'm not offering you, actually, any actual communication. And so I am not present when I am lying. And for that reason, if you lie in your personal life and your social interactions, you're somehow not actually there. There is no communication. Not only is there no communication at that particular point, there's potentially no communication in the future because it vitiates the other person's relationship to you because there's quite a good chance they'll spot that you're lying and they'll assume that that might be the case in future, in, the, in which case they know that they can't communicate with you. Now, there are, I think, certain circumstances in which not only maybe it is uh, reasonable to lie, but sort of necessary. I mean, if we're a spy, we have to lie. You can't be a spy and not be lying about what's going on. You're going to get caught out. You're not going to be an effective spy. If you are a revolutionary fighting an autocratic and vicious regime, you probably have to lie. Otherwise, you're going to end up in jail very quickly and you're not going to achieve your end. So there are certain circumstances when we're dealing with authority, an authority that we disagree with, and whose rules we don't accept, where it may be that lying is an effective strategy. But in our personal lives, if we lie, what we do is we, in a way, end up in the same position as the spy. That is, we're rather alone in that situation. The spy has a lonely space in which they're not actually present to the world. They're like an observer of the world. And... So I think on a personal level, uh, if we are honest, this is, a, is better for us and indeed for those around us. I'll just say one final very quick thing, which is the puzzle I'm not going to have time to talk about now is why lying is quite so endemic. Because, of course, we lie a spectacular degree of the time. From the time when, you, when someone says, how are you, say, oh, I'm fine. That's why, of course, there's no communication. Nothing's really going on there. But we do it an enormous amount of the time, not just to each other, but in all sorts of... with our children. Um, it's, not, it's not just Father Christmas. It's what's going to happen if you don't do this now. We'll come back and buy it tomorrow. All sorts of things. Endless lies. So why are we doing those? And the sort of re one of the important reasons I would give... Um, hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about it is that I think we're often trapped by a mistaken belief in realism. That one of the reasons that we lie is because we feel trapped by the previous closures that other people have had into maintaining this story which doesn't fit with the world. And that I would want, therefore, to encourage a space in which 
instead of somehow being trapped by fantasies which aren't real, we find ways to express what is going on for us in ways which are both honest and valuable for us in our dealings with the world. Thank you. Um, so we'll turn straight to Parashev Nachev for his thoughts on is, uh, should we embrace lies as a necessary part of being human? You can actually find out what it's like to remove lies from your life. All you have to do is shoot up some MPTP, which is a substance that uh, some drug addicts inadvertently... Um, so let me start again. If you want to find out what it's like to have a life without lies, you can actually find out yourself personally. You just have to shoot up some MPTP, a drug that some addicts inadvertently took in the 1980s as a contaminant of heroin. And what happened when they took it is that they weren't uh, suddenly uh, released into a world, a wonderfully liberated world of truth. On the contrary, what happened is that they became stuporos. It sends you into a perfect uh, state of, of uh, being mute. And the reason why it does that is that it kills a system within the brain that signals the mismatch between prediction and reality. Essentially, it tells... It is a signal that detects a difference between what you expect and what actually happens. If you like, by removing that signal, you're removing lies in somebody's life, and the result is not good. Now, you might say that's a very general notion of a lie, too general. That seems an error or a falsehood is not necessarily a lie. A lie is something that one deliberately chooses to say as a deception, usually for one's own gain. But actually, I think it is precisely... Uh, the difficulty in maintaining the difference between the narrow sense and the more general sense uh, that is a source of difficulty. And in particular, I think there's been a tendency recently to construe thought as being primarily concerned with fact, establishing facts about the world so that we can make it more comfortable for ourselves. But in fact, a lot of thought is not like that. It isn't primarily concerned with fact. It's not scientific or proto-scientific, to, to put it uh, one way. For example, let's take the creative world. Now, the creative world is dominated by counterfactuals, which are, by definition, not true. If you were to remove counterfactuals from, from creativity, from the art world, there wouldn't be very much left. Conversely, there are people who have difficulties with counterfactuals, autistics, for example, and these people are not uh, generally uh, feel, they don't usually feel liberated by that. If anything, they feel rather constrained by it. Let's turn to something else, another domain of life, games. Now, can you imagine a game of football where you're not allowed to do a dummy move? A dummy move is a sort of deception, isn't it? It's a sort of lie. Or imagine a tennis match where you can't do any drop shots. Would you be a more virtuous player? Well, you would certainly be a much more boring player if you did that. What about our sexual lives? Well, sex is surely, or relationships certainly, surely are not in general about determining facts. They may be grounded in facts, but they don't proceed directly from facts, at least not uh, non-numerical ones. And... Uh, and there are all sorts of strange asymmetries, for example, in relationships, such as that if you spontaneously fall in love, everyone thinks it's marvelous, whereas if you spontaneously fall out of love, everyone thinks this is a form of betrayal. 
And in general, there is something strange about the function that deception plays in love. Some people find a special thread in it that seems to be separate from fidelity, which is also valued. Now, what about something like religion? Well, if you were to run a business on the same evidential standard as religion, you probably wouldn't last a second. If you were a doctor and you uh, applied medicine on the same evidential standard as religion, you'd be struck off. Does this mean that uh, religious belief is therefore flawed? Well, not if you consider that religious belief is not really about fact as such. I think that religion is really, in a sense, performative. And asking why somebody believes uh, in the way that he does religiously is, is putting the question marks too deep. Uh, I think it's a mistake that the founders of sociology made uh, to think of, uh, uh, of something like a rain dance, for example, as being somehow proto-scientific. Uh, the tribesman doesn't dance in a rain dance because he thinks it's going to rain as a result. He's not stupid. Tribesmen don't shoot arrows blindly into the forest thinking that they might hit some quarry. So they're able to understand um, uh, regularities in the world around them. And the reason why they dance is just because they dance. That's what they do. That's where the explanation stops. And what is absurd isn't the act, but looking for a different kind of explanation for it. So I would say that uh, human beings have a range of aspects to them, and the mode of thought where truth and falsehood uh, is critical is only one aspect of what it is they do. And it doesn't mean that it necessarily has to be hierarchically superior to the others. And in fact, if you take a human being and you remove art, games, sex, and religion, what will you have left? Um, I don't know. Maybe it will be something like Richard Dawkins. Um, I don't know whether or not that's necessarily a good thing. Now, to say all of this is not to say that the distinction between truth and falsehood is not important, and more generally that the rational mode of thought is not important. I think it's critically important. But one has to be quite clear about the limits of its jurisdiction. Uh, it only concerns a part of our lives. And actually, if we want to protect it and we, we want to defend it, we have to mark out its territories correctly. Because if we let it go too loose, then someone else might attack it by saying, well, hang on, here's an example where it does not apply. I'll stop there. Thank you. Um, well, thank you all three. Um, I think we should address, first of all, this difference in opinion about objective truth and thereby presumably objective lies within the panel. Um, firstly, it's interesting. It seems none of the speakers are suggesting there's a sort of metaphysical other world which is truth and that the world here is lies. Nobody's occupying that sort of position in any way. So let's... Um, let's uh, Jamie, or are you about well, to talk about uh, Well, that, actually, Jamie? interestingly, put it like that. I, I wouldn't choose that way of describing it, but I would be saying that the way that we hold the world is never true, in the sense that it is the same thing as the world itself. And you might, 
in a metaphorical sense, say the way the world is is in some absolute sense of truth, and the space that we inhabit is therefore not true in a sense. It's not the same as the world. Um, and but I think that what's going on there in your description is this elision of the word lies to mean falsehood. Uh, obviously, the point I was trying to make is that this is just a mistaken elision. It happens in our public life all the time. People are constantly referring to falsehoods as lies. This isn't right. Um, lies are about our relationship to our own thoughts and closures. Uh, and in that sense, uh, I don't think they're applicable to the word. You can't say the world is a lie. Um, uh, or the, anyway. Yes. No, I, I don't okay. think any, anybody David, who's given David, a moment's thought confuses truth and honesty and falsehood and lies. They're obviously not the same thing. You, as Hillary said, you can uh, lie and accidentally tell the truth because um, you happen to have false beliefs. Or, or the other way around. Uh, you can be being honest and tell people something that isn't true because your beliefs are false. It's very obvious. Can I just ask Jamie yeah. just to probe a little? How, how do we establish where truth ends and where lies begin then within, but, but, if you believe these are objective possibilities? Well, I mean, it's very easy for me to explain that. So I, if you take the realist view of truth, you say, well, you're... Beliefs correspond, you know, uh, by the way, I'm only talking about beliefs, and beliefs are truth-seeking states of mind. Of course, there are all sorts of other states of mind, other things we do, I'm, and the issue of lying actually doesn't even arise, uh, it seems to me, in those cases. So anyway, t- let's take belief and genuine assertion. Genuine assertions are statements that express beliefs. By the way, I think that that answers one of your questions. When people say, I'm fine, how are you, I'm fine, that isn't, people just go, mm, to each other. They're not really making assertions, right? It's a, it's a different kind of speech act. But anyway, now, we've got beliefs, genuine beliefs. On my view, you believe something, if the world is how you believe it to be, well, then your belief's true. Uh, no. So I, I, then you say something. Well, if you say what you believe and your belief's true, we've got a nice, happy coincidence here. You're being honest and you're also expressing a truth. That's the ideal situation. Uh, then it might go wrong. You might uh, have a false belief, and you, but you're an honest chap, and you utter it, and you've misled people. Not, uh, intent, not intentionally, but because you happen to have an f- honestly held false belief. Now, this gets us to, I think, the big dispute here. I, I, so we agree about the definition of lying. It's when you say something you don't honestly believe. But the question is, why should I care? Why do we care about lying? If... If it, our interest in lying is mainly derived, in my opinion, from our interest in whether or not we can rely on other people as providing us with an accurate view of the world. I don't care. You, you want to, you're inviting us to occupy your space when you speak. I don't care about your space. You can have your space. I want to know about the world, and I am interested in what you've got to say insofar as I can learn about the world from you. I don't care about communicating as... I'm, you know, I may, but that's a different issue. I think the convention of honesty, though it's not, honesty isn't the same as telling the truth because all the reasons we've gone through, it's derived, the reason we really care about it and the reason we have social incentives to be honest is because of the ultimate value of accuracy in our understanding of reality. Well, let me turn that to Parashko, but why do we care about lying? But, but part of the difficulty, I think, is that how do you apply this to something like the exchange about the weather or how you the, feel? 
I mean, oh, no, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't really. But, but what I'm saying, so but a lot of a lot of the exchanges that people have, a lot of the things that they say, they say simply because this is what they do. The gesture, the meaning, is Absolutely. in the gesture itself, rather than conveying a particular fact. And the question is, what part of our discourse is to do with conveying facts? And what I'm saying is that it, it is only one part of it. Um, but I think we have a very good working. We all kind of understand that. That's why. If you, you know, if Tony Blair says there are weapons of mass destruction, uh, we get pretty pissed off when we discover yeah. there aren't, and that he knew the word, right? Uh, whereas when you say, "Does my bum look big in this?" and I go, "No, it looks beautiful," nobody, we kind of understand the difference. Yeah. Well, in those two examples, we do. But then we say to people, "Why do you believe in God?" and then we ask for some kind of evidence, factual evidence, as if what you're asking is a scientific question. And it's not a scientific question. It's, it's a misplaced question to ask why, or at least to expect an answer in terms of facts. So w w what, I, what I want to do is to say this talk of facts is extremely dangerous. And the reason that it's extremely dangerous is because it imagines that the world consists of a set of facts which we might accurately get there or not, and it makes us critical of people who hold the world in a different way than we do and therefore have different facts. I would want to argue that facts are dependent on the model or the frame in which you are operating. And within that frame, there are errors and mistakes that you can make, um, and that determines whether that fact is true within that frame. But it's within the frame, within, in the, my terms, the closure. And the reason why I think the talk of facts is a dangerous one is because it makes it look as if there's a given or limited number of frames, as it were, and that, therefore, you just might arrive at the ultimate set of them. And as a result of that, I think it means that you don't really listen to the, or you sometimes don't listen to the position that the other person is occupying. So I don't, for example, think that in terms of the dispute between us, it's as if you might be right or I might be right. You are proposing that we hold the world a certain way. You are suggesting, think of the world as being made of facts out there or consisting of facts and we are engaged in a pursuit to find them and find them accurately. I would want to say this is a mistaken idea. You will never arrive. Indeed, you can, I would challenge you to provide any fact which I'm not in a position to, to challenge or undermine. Well, uh, should, we, um, should we then, Jamie, do you want to respond? Are you right? Uh, and well, uh, how can you prove well, it? Well, obviously, I, I think I'm right because I mean, that's what I'm saying. I, I'm not some kind of. I, I say what I think. Uh, so, I say what I, I think. Too. No, I know, but what's odd yeah, is you say I'm wrong. I don't see how. No, but how can I be wrong? Opinion, on your position, you just said that I have, you think I'm mistaken. But mm. that doesn't make sense on your theory. I, mean, I, I can say you're mistaken. Uh, but you can't say I'm mistaken, right? No, well, unfortunately, you, 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 weren't, you weren't present at the first, uh, at the first talk. Um, what, what I endeavoured to do is to show how uh, it, it's perfectly possible for me to argue that you're mistaken in the sense that it is not a useful way of holding the world. 
So I could say, if you hold it like that, these are some of the consequences. So I think there are all sorts of consequences of holding the world in the way that you propose, which don't work. That if you pursue the idea of facts, I think you get yourself in all sorts of problems. I think you get yourself into theoretical problems, in the sense you can't actually define what a fact is. You can't say what the relationship is between facts and the world. Philosophy has tried over the last hundred years to try and work out what the relationship is between language and the world which makes sense of facts. Totally failed. And, and, and that's because the very idea, I think, is not workable. And it's not just workable, not workable at a theoretical level, I think it doesn't work in terms of a practical level, in terms of how science should operate, in terms of how science might uh, make the best progress that it could. So I would argue that it's mistaken in the sense that it's just not a very useful way of functioning. Well, perhaps I can bring Parashkiv in because we're talking about science. Yeah. Well, I mean, what, what, what's your response? Well, I don't see why one can't compartmentalise it and say there are circumstances in which a factual analysis is the correct way to go. Now, it seems to me reasonable to argue that sometimes it is helpful for us to establish facts and the facts that we establish uh, have some useful consequence. We build something, we create something, or we come up with a model that seems to fit the world as we see it. In those cases, it is a factual analysis we're doing and saying that the world can be explained by the facts that we observe is a useful thing to do. There are other circumstances where you may be able to give a factual account but at the moment we can't because we cannot grasp the complexities involved. And one of those domains is the neural basis of our cognitive and cogitative powers in general. There it's very tempting to try and pin what goes on in our brains and somehow relate it to what happens psychologically, but actually most of the time we fail because the facts do not actually explain what it is fundamentally to be explained. Well, perhaps at that point we, we can move to the second part of the debate, which is about identity and the effect that debates about lies have on individual identity. And Parashkiv, just to carry on with that, um, I suppose as we're talking about neural modelling, um, this question of do we know that we are lying? How does the individual know when she or he is lying? So... So when we speak of lying, we normally mean something that is conscious. And if it's conscious, then, of course, we know. We must know because it's part of the definition of what we're talking about. But the difficulty is what do you do when somebody does something uh, in their, uh, that is at odds with what he says or where uh, the mismatch that we're observing happens not to be in the conscious realm? then what exactly is going on? Is that person suddenly different, or is he true to a part of him that is not exposed in the conscious realm? And I think the difficulties here is that when we think of human beings, we think them exclusively as persons. We forget that a human being has a range of powers, one of which is to be able to speak and report and give reasons and take reasons. But human beings do all sorts of other things, that are, well, it's not that they're subconscious, they're just a-conscious. They do not interact with consciousness directly. And that aspect you can't easily identify because it doesn't correspond to an I. It corresponds to the human being, but not somebody that you can interrogate. And that's where it becomes difficult. Sometimes people do things, they just do them, 
you talk to them about it, they, they give some rationalization, maybe, or maybe they give no explanation, but the real explanation is something that's hidden underneath the surface. And that's where it's difficult to speak of being true to yourself. You can be consistent as a human being, but the idea that you will always necessarily, will always necessarily make sense to speak about being true to this mythical I that we supposedly have within us, I don't think that works. Hilary, do you want to come in on can we be true to ourselves? Is that a, is that a tangible goal? Yes. So the, Maybe they're yeah. too far away. Um, they're too far away. Yeah, they are. Um, so the question is to take up what Parashkev is saying, can we be true to ourselves? And to ask Hillary, who's, who's talking about this idea of honesty, personal honesty. So is this a possibility? Well, there are lots of different levels, I think, of that question. I mean, if, again, you're trying to somehow peer beyond our linguistic frame and say, can we be true to ourselves treating the I as some metaphysical ultimate I, then obviously I don't think one can be true to ourselves in that sense any more than I think that we can be true to the world. But in the sense of can we be, can we seek to express uh, ourselves honestly, then yes, absolutely, of course I think we, we can do that. And indeed, as I've been arguing, I think that um, holding the world uh, as we say is a vital part of communication and maybe an example of that would be to take a circumstance where how do we identify that somebody isn't lying well, is lying and one of the ways of course is that when you lie you are pretending to do something so maybe you just get the gestures wrong you know? but it's more tricky than that because I don't know whether you, as a child or maybe as an adult you've, you've been in that situation where you, 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 someone looks up at a cloud and you say can you see the face Someone says, oh, I can see the face. How about, how about the castle over there? Can you see the castle? And you, you, you uh, look at it and say, oh, yeah, I, I, I see the castle. How do you know whether they're lying or not? Well, actually, and I think I've been in this situation. I've been suspicious that actually someone hasn't seen. They're, they're not with me in the, in, in the adventure in the cloud. <laughs> and, um, but it's very easily identifiable because you just say to them, what do you think is happening with the third turret on the right-hand side? And if they have not realised the closure, if they've not realised the thought, if they've not been there, they don't have it. They don't hold the world like that. So thoughts aren't something that are somehow laid on the world, as if we've got reality and we just come along and we just describe it, as if it's just there in the first place. We've just named it. We create it. When we, when we sort of hold that bit as a castle, we sort of see a castle. We have something we didn't have before. And all of our thought functions like that. But so so, so, so when, when, we, when somebody lies, to maintain the lie, they've got to imagine what it would be to have seen the castle. And they've got to apply that to all of the different circumstances, all of the different places where it might have another impact on their thought. And it's extremely difficult to do that. Sure, surely, but, it, but, but it's grounded in what they're seeing, so they don't suddenly see a pink elephant, right? So would you not say that it has to be somehow a synthesis of what is there and what you they think is there? They have to hold what, how their senses are responding to the world rather than what's there. 
They have to hold what the way that their senses are responding to the world in a way. So they can't, you know, they can't see it as a pink elephant if there's not a way of holding it as a pink elephant. Right. But there are lots of ways that they could see it. I see. In fact, there's an almost infinite number of ways in which they could hold, just as there's an infinite number of ways we could hold what's going around here. Is this a conversation? Is it a, mm. is it a talk? Is it a combination of humans interacting with each other? Is it a collection of molecules? Is it um, a, a, uh, an exploration of an idea? Mm. All of those are different ways of holding what's happening, and there's no limit to the number of different ways we can hold the moments of, the, of our lives. But the facts do constrain it to some degree. I mean, nobody would say this is an orgy, Indeed. for example. Indeed, but... Um, <coughs> so, well, they could, they, could, they, could, they could say, actually. There's, there's always ways in which you could... The amazing thing about our thought and our closure is you just have to be inventive about it. You know, you could say it's an orgy of thought. Or it's, a, a, you know, a, a, an orgy of platitudes. You know, there could be all sorts of things. Uh, so so um, there are ways in which you can use any of those things. And it's the richness, the potential richness of the ways in which we can hold the world, which I think il- illustrates the failure of imagining that there's one way that we might be able to hold it. Well, let's let uh, Jamie respond. Well, I, okay, I'm, I'm just a bit concerned that we're straying off... Uh, Identity, uh, but I'll, well, let's, and it's going to become okay. Well, let me. Can I just say one? Being reliable, so this right. idea well, well, let me, we all want to exist in a combat. If right. someone's saying okay. I can do so whatever I like, I can you know, do I that, and I can. Okay, so, so is that breaking yes, a sort of contract between us? You can say, I mean, I can be presented with the world, and I can say anything I like. The way reality constrains us is not is not through what we say; it's through uh, our actions. The, when I act, when I, I believe the world to be a certain way, now you can different. We can have completely different conceptual frames, as you may call them. You might divide the world up quite differently. Uh, as a matter of fact, creatures don't. But that's we'll maybe get back to that. But it, you could. Uh, and then you want something, right? Like I want my pink shirt. We'll use this trivial example again. I want the pink shirt. Uh, and then I believe it's in the dryer because somebody told me it's in the dryer. So what happens? I go to the dryer. Right? That's the point. I don't say anything. Forget what I say. I go to the dryer. And then when I get to the dryer, and it turns out that there isn't that the statement was false, as I'll naively call it. There isn't. I don't get. I don't get the shirt. Right? That's the problem. So I can, if I, I might like to think there's a shirt there and. Nice people more, might say, yeah, yeah, if you think there's a shirt there, there's a shirt there. There's a shirt there, if you believe it. And I go there, it doesn't help me. I don't get the shirt. That is what the connection between reality and belief is that matters. It guides Our beliefs guide our actions, and if our beliefs are false, we go wrong. So I am going to be doing stuff. I don't know everything. I ask you, uh, tell me where's the shirt. Uh, I want you to tell me that it's where it is. And this is all, there's nothing metaphysical about this. It's all very humdrum. And it's also about usefulness. Uh, it's a useful way about thinking about your shirt is to think about it being where it actually is. That's the useful uh, thought to have about its location. Think of it as being where it in fact is. So would you, can I then follow up on the idea of, would you find a moment where it would be morally or socially allowable to lie. Yes, absolutely. No, no, and I think I can... People who have 
to life. I think I can explain it very nicely out of this. Because beliefs uh, guide your actions, and when you lie to somebody, you're trying, in a sense, you're thwarting them, you're misleading them, you're pointing them in the wrong direction. Now, if they have wicked goals, that is a good thing to do. So the classic example would be lying about the, you know, to a Nazi about the Jew I have in my attic. Uh, I am putting him off the track. I'm misdirecting him. And that is the right thing to do in this case because he's going to do something bad. Uh, in general, though, it's not a good thing to do. On, in general, we get along with each other and society functions well by having a convention that we don't go around misleading people all the time because most people are decent and they're going about their own business and it's, we all get along better if we tell the truth. So I, I think that this understanding of the convention of honesty as being one that's aimed at facilitating people getting along in their lives also immediately explains why sometimes it's okay to lie. In fact, sometimes it's required to lie. Yes. So, uh, can I just pick on this, yes, the, sure. this point you were making initially? I suppose part of the point that I, I, I'm trying to make here is because we agree in, in many ways. I want, want to say exactly the same thing. The reason that something matters is whether it's useful so I want to say the reason that uh, a way of holding the world um, is valuable or not is whether it's useful, whether it does what we would like it to do. But, uh, but I want to jettison some uh, metaphysical notion that we've somehow uncovered the nature of the world in finding something that is useful, finding something is useful. So I want to say the language is a tool. And, and in relation to the, the person, therefore... I, uh, the reason that I therefore want to give as to why lying is not a good thing is not because it's morally bad or something. What the hell's that? You know, what, what, the, the reason that it's not, um, it, it's not a valuable thing to do is because you aren't present. You're not, when, you, when you lie, you haven't held the world like that, and the other person can't share your space. And if you don't share your space with somebody, you're not communicating with them. You're not being with them. And as a result of that, you are at a loss as well as them. Can I just, before we move to the final section of the debate, I just want to ask Parish Kiv to respond on that, this idea that you're not present when you're lying. I mean, this, within a neuroscientific model, obviously... The brain is present during the lie. So how would you respond? Well, the, the, the difficulty is that who exactly is it that's present? Partly mm. depends on how you decide to measure it. So if you ask someone something, they give you an answer. But there's actually recently uh, someone has developed a test where instead of responding with words, you respond by performing a sorting task where essentially you're going through a number of... Uh, you're, you're sorting uh, two categories that are being tested... And you're trying to say whether or not one is good and the other, the other one's bad. It's called implicit association tests. And then you combine the two categories, such as you have to respond with the same finger whether something is good or bad and whether it's the category that you're sorting. Anyway, it's a, I'm not explaining very well, but it's an elaborate, it's, a, it's a, essentially a motor way of testing what your belief is. And sometimes you find that what people say and what they actually do as measured by that test is discrepant. Now we say, okay, well, this is an implicit tendency that you have. Well, who has? So clearly it's unified in the human being. It's just not unified at the point at which somebody reports it in words. But, 
I mean, I agree that there's a question of this issue of who is the I, and that's a whole other story as to how we construct that and whatever. And I actually argue that, that we, we should try and construct a consistent I. But that's, there's just a more just immediate sense in which I think, if you think of that spy, the spy is not present. If you were a spy, you're somehow not... You're, you're just not here. With, you're talking to somebody. You're being something else. Um, for any of those in the audience who have found themselves in a situation of lying to their partner, you're not really present with them. It changes your experience. You, you have a sense of feeling distant. Well, that's because you are distant. You are not there. You are not sharing the space. Can I, I... And, and, and it's in that sense that you are undermining your own experience. You're making your own experience less rich as a result of that. And you're doing it because you think that it will be damaging to you, of course, in some way. So this is, that question is, well, why the hell do we do it, given the fact that it's so empty? Being a spy is a very empty, lonely, miserable place. You're cut off from everyone. Well, so why do we do it? But, but I think that that's what's going on when you're like, you're just not you. You're not there. But then this is, okay, let's, let's go into the third phase then, which is about ethics and politics. And we've kind of touched on all of this already. Um, but let's, let's then, I'll turn to Jamie. Is this, is this a vision you, you then recognise, this sort of everybody lying to each other, this kind of vision of zombies moving around who have no integral self, you know, who've sort of lost any notion of who they are? No. Uh, I, I, when politicians lie, they're very, very... I mean, there's no question why they're doing it. They're very present. They want something, and they're going for it. It's, uh, it's, more, like, it's, a bit like, it's more like the drop shot that was alluded to earlier. It's part of the game. Uh, but I, I want to just take this opportunity to make an important distinction that I haven't made, uh, which shows why I think lying is much more common than ordinarily recognized. And bear with me for... Hopefully I can do this in about 90 seconds. Uh, belief comes by degree. This is something that isn't often pointed out, but it does. All economists know this. Everyone who works in decision theory. So you believe things by, with certain degrees of confidence. If you're completely certain of something, that's confidence level one or 100%. If you're completely certain that it's false or the opposite, that's zero, right? So belief ranges between zero and one. Now, the great philosopher Frank Ramsey, and he was also an economist, worked out, what, what do we mean by this? What, 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 what is it for your belief to vary by degrees? He said, well, what it means is it's the odds you would take on a bet on the proposition. So suppose that uh, I say to you, uh, there are weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. Uh, no, Tony Blair says it. Well, to what degree does he believe it? He said he was almost certain. But what bet would he take on it? That's the test, right? If what odds would he take on, on a big bet that would actually cost him a bit? Uh, I reckon, he said he was almost certain, let's say that's 90%. I doubt he would have taken 9 to 1. Right? Uh, now, if you think of, you, if you, once you recognize that belief comes by degree, you cannot, cannot define it in the simple way we so far have. Because you believe, it, for every proposition, you believe both it and its negation. Right? Because you don't believe anything to 100%. We can come back to that if you want. So you believe both it and its negation to a certain amount. You're, in conventional language, if you're more confident of the one side than the other, you should say, I believe that one. Right? But strictly speaking, you do believe the other just a bit. 
Now, I think that what lying is in politics mainly is overstating your degree of confidence in the propositions you're asserting. Politicians relentlessly go around speaking as if they were terribly confident of things that you know they can't really be that confident of. Look at the way, let's just take a top example. George Osborne speaks about what effects his policies are going to have on the economy in a way that seems to imply that he's got some confidence about it. We all know he doesn't have that much confidence. They do this all the time. Fortunately, we're very used to it. We discount what they say. And you you just get into a habit of discounting. This goes wrong when, uns- when, you get su- when people elevate their lying by surprise. Right? Now, this happened to me with CVs I was receiving from America. I, I get a lot of ap- you know, I look at job applications, and you know, people exaggerate on their CVs. But I had no idea. You know, they, they, I, I was discounting a bit, but I had no idea what the norm had become. I'd been out of the world for a while. Now I've had to adjust. I've had to adjust, and now I know how to read a CV. Uh, and that's roughly, I think, what's going on in politics. We're all trying to keep up. They're trying to get a step ahead, and we're in the business of you know, adapting our listening to their talking. Okay, who wants to respond? Uh, yes. Um, well, I don't think that, that politicians are different from the rest of us in that sense. I mean, presumably when people undertake their marriage vows, they, rather like politicians, believe what they're saying at the time but almost 100% of people break them in some form. Are they all liars? And I don't accept the idea that this percentage business, we have a 1% belief in something, 99% uh, not belief or whatever it is. I think most of the time it's absolutely all or nothing. When we look up at that cloud and we hold a bit of it as a castle... That's what it is. We don't hold it as 5% a castle or 90% a castle. We see a castle. And one of the characteristics of our thought, and the reason why I refer to them as closures, is because when we go for it, that's how we hold the world. If we are looking at that duck rabbit, which is either one thing or the other, you can't see them both at the same time. You don't see it as 5% duck, 95% rabbit. You just see it, and you see it as one thing or the other. Our brains are built like that. We are built to make closures, to hold things one way or another. And when we're in this space, when we're holding the world as if it's like this, we are somehow lost to that way of holding it. Now, I accept that, obviously, at a rational level, we can stand back from our thought process and think, well, actually, I could hold it like that, but I'm not, in fact totally certain of it. But the way that we think is to be lost in our our way of holding it, which is why we have this rather strange experience in life of appearing to be um, certain about where we are most of the time about most things, even though it's fairly obvious to us that loads of people have different points of view about different things in different ways. That's because we're built we're built to make closures which are just one thing in, in, in one way of doing it. Let's, I just want to ask Pareshkiv about the, the notion of the kind of moral aspect of all of this, this sort of idea of the rationality and who's thinking. And as Hiro was saying earlier about the person who lies, thinks they're lying because they want to stay off work, but then they're ill internally. I mean, is, so within 
you know, our own kind of minds or brains. Or there's, there's a lot of processes that are nothing to do with this whole moral spectrum. I wonder if you might draw those in, the sort of utterly unethical workings that are within, which well, fall out entirely. Morality is not in the realm of the brain. Morality is in the realm of people. That the brain or function, normal function of the brain is required in order to support it, uh, but it isn't something that's part of the brain. And many neuroscientists get this wrong and they try to localize morality or other things inside the brain. But where I think the study of the brain is actually relevant is that it tells us about the various powers that people have that may or may not make their transgressions, their moral transgressions, more or less excusable. So, for example, if you were to find that somebody without legs is unable to run, you wouldn't say this is a moral failure. Now, what happens if you have somebody who has a part of the brain on which moral behavior depends missing, and he behaves badly? We would normally say this man is immoral and we'd condemn him, but here he's simply lacking the physical apparatus on which... Uh, on which morality depends. So I think this is where neuroscience comes into it. Whether or not it makes a big difference to how we treat lies, I, I'm not so sure. Uh, we choose, I think, where, where it is helpful to condemn lies is where it makes a difference to whether or not people engage in them. And that is inevitably going to be a spectrum. And there are many situations in which it is the right thing to lie. Uh, the example that we had about stopping someone else do a crime or harm somebody else, actually there are situations where you have to lie to somebody for his own sake. I mean, this happens far too often in medicine and is currently not sufficiently acknowledged. For example, supposing somebody is ill and he asks me, what are my chances of survival? Now, supposing that what I say to him influences whether or not he fights for his life, and therefore the likelihood of his surviving. I can't say to him, if I tell you you're going to die, then it will make it 50% more likely for you to die, because I've already told him, right? So here, autonomy and non-malevolence in the kind of medical ethics terminology are in conflict. And it seems to me the only thing to do is to lie. Does of course, it's a dangerous uh, circumstance, that, because we, of course, <laughs> use that, that excuse to lie in countless situations. I better not tell my partner because they really don't want to hear this. I better not, I better not tell my, my colleague because um, they might be offended. And doctors, indeed, frequently have ducked telling patients because they just don't want to have to deal with the emotional difficulty that's going to be the outcome. So saying it's for their interest is often a, 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 sure. a, an excuse for yeah. lying, which, uh, as I say, has the consequence for the person that it both means that they're not present with the person, so they have ceased some, somehow to be real with the other person, but it also undermines f future communication. But I just want to pick up on this morality story, because I'm very sceptical of this whole talk of morality. It just seems to me morality is just a means of coming along and saying, do things in the way that I would like you to do them. Um, uh, I don't believe in morality as being objective any more than I think that the world is an objective thing. It's just a way that we pull something on to explain why you should do this. Oh, it's morally right. 
It's not an explanation at all. It's just to say, I approve of this thing. I want you to do it. I'm going to call it as morally right. So I want you to be honest, so I'm just going to say it's morally right to do it, it's morally bad not to. Well, I agree that sometimes the story of morality is a useful way of getting people to do things. It's how we use it with children. Don't do it, it's bad. But it's not actually a very good account of why you really shouldn't do it. And it seemed to me the reason that that we should or shouldn't lie in a situation is the consequences of whether this works for us or not. To to take Jamie's uh, 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 thought that what really matters is does it work? And my contention is that there are certain situations in relation to authority where it is the right thing to, or it works for us to lie because we don't accept the framework of that authority and the authority is not actually communicating with us or interested in communicating with us. It's just interested in imposing its rule. And insofar as it's just engaged in imposing its rule, then our only way around that is somehow to, to, to pretend to go along with the rule but to do something else. But in our personal lives where we are actually wanting to be present with people and to communicate with people, um, then it seems to me that to lie is a dangerous thing, both for ourselves and for all of those around us. Great. Um, Jamie, if you want to respond really quickly and then we'll have questions. Uh, I think I kind of agree, uh, <laughs> which not, not with the metaphysics, so to speak, but with the idea that uh, I, I don't like... There are clear cases where you, you should lie, but I think that there should be a very strong uh, convention of not lying because of the risk of what's called noble cause corruption. I don't know if you're familiar with this expression. It originated with the police planting on evidence in cases where they were certain that the person they were planting the evidence on was guilty. And you know, so they're doing the right thing. Uh, but they're lying. And I think that there's a tendency, especially for people with very high, high-minded moralists who are quite certain that they know what's best for other people, to be inclined to think that their superior morality licenses an enormous amount of lying so as to bring about good effects. And I would, I'm very keen not to live in a society where uh, such kind of elevated ideas about your subjective moral, moral judgments trump a convention of uh, honesty. Oscar Wilde said all artists must lie all the time, but um, we'll try not to. Um, okay, questions from the audience. <laughs> Lots. Okay, yes, <clears throat> gentlemen there. Um, is there a mic? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to confess to a little bit of disappointment here, but I'm not going to go into the... You'll have to speak right into... Yeah, okay, I'm not going to go into the individual arguments for disappointment, but... Um, um, specifically, there are two things that I think have been badly missed out here. One is uh, the notion of fiction as um, uh, a deception, but that's usually between an individual author and an individual reader. But the notion of theatre, surely, is the ultimate example, and very common, of um, almost by definition of a deceptional lie. But it can portray a, virtue, a, a version of the truth. Um, so my question is, can mistakes or known error provide some perhaps emotional certainty? Who wants well, to go? I, I think this links back to some earlier parts of the discussion. I don't think any, you would want to say that a, a fictional author was lying because everybody knows that it's a work of fiction and so they're not, he's not presenting these 
statements as statements of fact or what he believes to be facts. He's stating that, you know, it's a story. Uh, and the story may reveal true things that he believes to be true. It's not the story that's true exactly, but he's trying to get across some bigger idea or something like that. And the story may be an effective means of communicating those ideas to people. And that, yeah, that's all fine. I've got no, I mean, that's not, I don't think there's any lying going on. I don't even think there's deception going on, as provided it's... I mean, you can be deceptive. There was that guy who passed off a book... He was on Oprah, he passed it off as being true and it wasn't James really Fred. true. Yeah. Um, but you know, on the whole, out now, open fiction, it, it's pretty clear what it's trying to do, I think, and I don't think there's anything, I don't think there's any deception going on at all. Um, yes, at the front. I've got a billion questions, I'll try to narrow them down. But speaking, you, you brought up about doctors and I, and I think of the phenomenon of anchoring bias, where the first doctor, you, somebody goes to see somebody, they've got a problem with their left eye, the initial physician writes it up as being in the right eye, and every physician that person sees for the rest of his life treats the right eye and ignores the problem in the left. Dishonesty, lying, what's the phenomenon there that everybody's sort of depending what's a previous doctor that did in protecting their own position in there? And where's the morality in that? Well, I mean, I have to say I haven't seen that in my practice or the practice of my colleagues. And in fact, doctors in general are very careful to take, well, the doctors that I know, to take the history and the examination again from every patient. If you turn up in a hospital certainly in this country, you, you tend to be incredibly bored because you have all these people coming to you and asking you exactly the same questions over and over again. Precisely it's just to avoid the Chinese whispers effect of, 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 of just repeating what's been done before. Uh, but I'm not quite sure. I, I can see it might be a problem could, in certain circumstances. Could, I, but, I, but I think that even if that case, if that's not, you know, never mind, I don't think that really matters. The point is that humans, are, it's well known now, have all sorts of tendencies to like bad intellectual habits, you might say, right? And there's been behavioral economists making a huge study of this. And it does seem that we are very apt to certain kind of bad ways of forming beliefs, at least in certain circumstances. There are often rules of thumb that work in some circumstances, not others. Now, the, I think the really difficult case is, you know, if you kind of go through that honestly and, you know, you can't help it, and then you say what you, the belief that you arrived at, you're not lying. However, I think there's a really borderline kind of case which is problematic where you kind of know that the mental processes you've gone through to arrive at your belief are dodgy. And then you go around stating this belief that you've arrived at in this dodgy way, and, and you say, but oh, I believe it, I believe it. And people go, but how can you really believe it? It was such a dodgy way of getting it. And I think something slightly immoral is going on there, something slightly, slightly irresponsible. Um, it would be like, you know, you say, you haven't done the safety checks on a boat, and then you put the people on the boat and send them out to sea. I mean, you see, because I see beliefs as having practical consequences. They actually affect the way people behave. And so I, I think those are really interesting and difficult cases where you know that your beliefs are not very well founded, and yet you still spout them. Nobody on the panel talked about the 
correspondence theory of truth, but that's been uh, largely or partly what the panel is arguing about. But I would like to hear the panel talk about a different subject, about the relation between lies and the coherence theory of truth. And that seems to me very intrinsically complicated because it is the nature of lies that they are incoherent. So what relation does the panel see between lies and the coherence theory of truth? Thank you. Who wants to start? I, I have a published on the coherence theory of truth, so I may be the panelist to take this one on. Okay. Uh, I don't think there's, uh, actually, I don't think there's a problem there. The coherence theory of truth is the view that truth is, is not a matter of uh, that your beliefs match in some sense a reality it's that they cohere as a whole. So they've got the right logical relations between them. So in the coherence theory of truth, your, one of your beliefs turns out to be true because it fits nicely with the other beliefs you have. Now, so that's a theory of truth. But then lying comes out exactly the same on this, which is that you say something you don't believe. Uh, the coherence theory starts from... It doesn't have a problematical view of beliefs. It thinks you have beliefs. It thinks whether they're true or not depends on whether they cohere... Uh, so li what lying will be in this case is saying something you don't believe just as usual what saying something false will be on this theory is saying having a belief that doesn't cohere with your other beliefs but I don't think there's any special problem raised about lying yeah uh, and strangely I mean this is why we strangely agree in, in many of the overall things and yet disagree about the issue about correspondence because obviously I um, opposed to the idea of a correspondence theory of truth. Of course I do. Of course, <laughs> of course I have. But in fact, I wouldn't accept a coherence theory of truth either. Um, but uh, I don't think that has an impact on our ability to refer to things as lies or honesty. Do you want to respond? Well, I was just going to say that coherence uh, is in some ways orthogonal to the question of truth. It's about the question between sense and nonsense. Does it make sense? Something might make sense or not be true. Actually, there is, there is something I would like to say. This is on a personal level. I mean, maybe some of you have been in this situation where you're faced with people who aren't being entirely honest with you. But it's all very well for me to have said that, uh, that I think people should be honest in the sense that they should just express uh, what they're thinking at the moment. But if you, are, if you are dealing with somebody who changes what they think on a regular basis um, in a way which seems to be in their interests... Um, you, you feel that you want to impose some coherence. Well, say, well, wait a minute, you, you said this uh, an hour ago. Uh, don't you need to take that into account uh, uh, now? Um, and in, 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 the, in, the, in that sense, I think there is a connection between coherence and lying. Thank you. Um, okay, uh, yes, there and then behind next. All right. <coughs> The question that you asked at the beginning was, should we embrace lies as a necessary part of being human? Now, I'm rather surprised that you've talked all the time about humans. Uh, no, uh, and that you've mainly talked about humans uh, who are speaking. Uh, I like the example of the, of the, you know, of the dummy pass. And I... And, and, of course, the way in which you react visually to what people are doing is a perfectly good way of deceiving them. But this is not particularly human, I don't think. Uh, the lapwing who 
in a sense, pretends that she's got a broken wing in order to take a potential predator away from the nest is, in a sense, doing what humans do with similar ways uh, without using language. However, I think I would argue that uh, lying is a necessary part of being humans because we're so capable of misrepresenting, of, of not sort of being in, as Hilary Lawson was saying, of, of not really being in the world that, that you're presenting yourself as being in. But it's partly because we've got that huge ability that it matters when we don't lie. In other words, when you're, I mean, you're telling the truth, uh, despite the huge opportunities not to be truthful and honest. And, and that's why lies are a necessary part of being human. I agree with you entirely about animals. Um, so it, it fits, provide, the, the, what you need to be able to lie is the, you need to know that other creatures have beliefs so that you can create in them wrong beliefs. Uh, and some animals, the have done experiments show that animals do know that some animals understand that other animals have beliefs and they sometimes set about misleading them on purpose. So I agree with you. Other animals can do a non-linguistic kind of lying. Um, and, but, you know, I mean, uh, humans, uh, necessary, it's a funny word, but, I mean, it's an inevitable part of the human condition. I mean, we do lie all the time. Everybody, I doubt everybody's lied. In that sense, I agree, it's, it's necessary. In, th in that sense, the word necessary. Um, there was a woman behind who wanted to ask something. Do you want to go? Yeah. Uh, you've all listed all these examples of both lies and truths. And my, I totally agree. But for me, the concern is, um, they are all, whether to choose to lie or, or tell the truth is behavior. So behind that, do you think there is principle to guide this decision? And this, is this principle universal or at least a similar, or could it be individual? And for me personally, I think there is. And especially I link this with Hillary, your two theory. One is uh, utility, so it's like it's useful, but I think it, there is principle, but in the society where everybody lies, and the punishment is actually smaller because everybody lies, then this utility may not be that true. And under that case, should people still follow the principle? Is there still actually motivation? If there is, can we call this moral? Yes. And I think, of course, that's why we've invented morality, is in order to try and get a social outcome that we approve of um, by somehow giving it uh, some higher plane of it, it, it significance. Uh, so, in a, in a way, uh, I might agree with you that it is a good thing to regard... Uh, something as being moral if the function of doing that is to have an outcome in terms of the way that society functions uh, which is one that we approve of which would encourage, encourage something which we wouldn't have otherwise but I, I absolutely wouldn't want to think that there is some, some, something out there, some moral um, ultimate which is determining that this is 
somehow the right thing to do. That's, that's what we've just chosen. I mean, you know, Fraser in the Golden Bough 100 years ago showed that for every different culture, there are different morals, and those morals are simply sometimes radically different from ours. Uh, the idea that, that there's some absolute out there that we're going along with, no, we, we do it because it is useful. But the fact that it's useful doesn't mean to think... I, I wouldn't want to, to give the impression that that this means that there isn't some, some uh, real value in, in, in the way that we choose to be. My, the sort of value I would be uh, I'm proposing is the idea that there is value in being ourselves, that is, being honest to ourselves and to the person that we're with. So that would be my grounds for saying this is why we should do it. It's because you're being true to yourself and you, you, there is more being. Re, your being is richer in that space rather than some relying on some external notion of a morality which I think you're going to have difficulty in maintaining. Can I just briefly come I yes. think this is a great question because this is a classic... Uh, I wanted to bring this up before. The lying, problem of lying and truth-telling, when you should lie, it's a classic, classic free-rider problem from economics. So if you have a general convention of telling the truth, this presents an opportunity for you to profit by breaking from that convention. Everybody else is telling the truth or being honest. Uh, let's not quibble. And, um, and you can get advanced by lying. Everybody thinks you're telling the truth because it's a general conception, but you're not. You're lying and you get ahead. We have this problem with street lighting, right? You know, if people, I can freeload off your paying for the street lighting. So it's, uh, it's really difficult to suppress free riding in society. And morality, I agree, morality may have emerged partly as a mechanism for doing this, but more than morality, there's a lot of interesting work now saying that God, the idea of God even, is for this purpose. Yeah, sure. So that God, the point is that with lying and a few other vices, nobody knows if you're up to it. But if God, who can see inside your head, he knows and he's going to punish you. So it turns out the societies which have come up with this idea of a God have le lower levels of what you might call moral free riding. And, and so I think it's, there's great, plenty to read around this subject. There's, I can't do it here, but it's a fascinating topic. Let's go. I think there's some avid questioners that way. Yes, the woman in the leather jacket. Thank you. I'd just like to maybe get a bit more analysis on the, um, the question of art and fiction. Uh, Dr. White said, well, it's, it's not a deception. But how would you explain the relationship between... Um, something not necessarily being accurate, for example, an abstract portrait I would draw of, of the panelists here. How would you describe the relationship between um, something, you know, being a lie and the truth value in art? So how would you, you know, is there more you have to say about the relationship between depicting something that isn't necessarily accurate but the truth within that and why we get a sense of being moved by an abstract painting that isn't necessarily an accurate representa physical representation. And my second question is to do with morality, and uh, Hillary has kind of dismissed morality as just a way that you um, try and make people do and think the same way as you. Um, but what would you have to say about perhaps a universal concept of human well-being? So if I was to saw somebody's arm off, would that be, you know, in any culture at any time, would that really, rep you know, how, 
um, true would that be to a concept of human well-being compared to offering somebody a sandwich when they were hungry? Um, and would you say that perhaps morality is based on that and that there is some sort of universality in human well-being? Okay, who wants to go on art? Um, Parakash, you've made art, actually, so do you want to talk about art? Well, I, I began with, with counterfactuals, uh, which, of course, are the essence of or an essential move in art, you're supposing, you're imagining the existence of something that doesn't exist. But I think the sense of lie in those circumstances is different. And it's only a problem if you, if you apply the narrow sense of lying that we've mostly been talking about in that domain. And I think that's where the difficulties arise. There is no problem with imagining something that doesn't exist. And there's no problem in judging whether or not it illuminates your thoughts about something just because it doesn't exist. There is simply a different notion of truth being applied here. And so the fact that there appears to be conflict, I think, isn't a, isn't a problem. In relation to the second question of, of morality and whether or not there's some absolute behind it, well, from a biological point of view, there are no laws of biology. Biology has no laws. It only has regularities. And if you're going to be looking for something absolute, something that's somehow given intrinsically in us, it has to be biological. And so you're not going to find it. All of ethics, all of morality, is going to be to some degree created by us and therefore to some degree arbitrary. It may well be grounded in various tendencies that we have, such as not liking the idea of people sawing our limbs off, but it's never going to be absolute. And that's really how it is in history. You don't have the same kind of morality everywhere. It varies from place to place. Uh, and in relation to the, to the morality question, m my stance in relation to morality is rather similar to that in relation to truth, which is that I think that we use it as a crutch to defend our prejudices. And that we don't... My advice would be you don't need it if you want to argue for something, if you want to stop somebody doing something, if you want to encourage them to do something else, if you think they have behaved in ways which you are despicable, you don't help your argument, really, by saying that was morally bad or wrong. Because if they don't agree with you, they're not impressed with your claim that it's morally wrong. What you have to do is convince them that if you hold it in that way, if you carry on holding the world like that, it's going to be not a good thing for you. You'll have all sorts of problems by, by doing that. And you have to do that hard work of convincing them why this is not a useful way to operate in the world and why it has consequences for them which they don't approve of. Now, I accept that in lots of everyday situations, parents are the worst at this, that instead of explaining to a child why this is uh, not a terribly useful, they just move in with an instantaneous, it's bad. Uh, and it's like a short form. But it would be my contention that if you actually really want to change someone's behavior, it's no good saying that it's bad. It's no good saying to a, um, a religious terrorist uh, who's just killed uh, hundreds of people by an action, uh, this was morally wrong. They'll laugh at you, and they'll laugh at you because they don't accept your way of holding the world. 
And if you want to get them to change their behaviour, what you do is not trade good and bad. What you should do is get in there and say, if you carry on with that way of holding the world, it will have these consequences. And they're not good for you. Uh, Can I just briefly touch on the art thing? Because I think I didn't do a fully good enough job with the previous gentleman. Some works of art, you can distill... You know, they're getting at a truth. They're not not supposing you believe everything that's said. Take a joke. I'll give you an example. I I don't like this joke, but it works for my example. Uh, why Why do women fake orgasms? Because they think men care. Now, this joke has a message in it, which is that men don't care about women's sexual pleasure, right? That is the joke. That's If you laugh, you kind of think, yeah, there's, a, it's, there's a, the truth behind the joke, right? Now, that truth could be true or false. So in that sense, a joke that has a clear kind of message in it, might, you might say that joke is false. Right? That makes sense. With a very abstract work of art, it's going to be really hard to say what the message is that the statement behind it is that would be false. So different works of art, I think, some are more amenable to distilling what you might say is a statement behind them, than others are. And if you can distill a statement from a work of art, then the issue of whether or not it's true arises. It might be false, it might be true, and also the issue of whether or not it's a lie. Because I might present that work of art with that message in a context where you took me to be asserting the underlying message, and I might not mean it. In that case, I'm lying. So it is possible to lie with a work of art. Um, I think we've got time for there's a very patient man at the back. Yes, your question. Bullshit. The point of the essay was to say that there is this category of bullshit, which is not lies, uh, because, well, essentially, the bullshit it does not really care whether what he says is true or false. He's trying to create a certain impression of himself say, as somebody who cares deeply about the poor or somebody who cares deeply about women's rights or whatever it might be. And I actually suspect that, Jamie White, in your book on Tony Blair, which is immensely entertaining, you're basically accusing Blair not of being a liar, although he may have lied, but more of being both a committer of informal fallacies and also a bullshitter. Now, what interests me is that Frankfurt thinks that bullshitting is a distinct category from lying. I suspect there's an intersection, though, yeah. Because, I mean, the liar doesn't necessarily care about telling lies. He doesn't, he doesn't value lying more than he values truth. He just lies when it suits him, yeah. just as he might tell the truth when it suits him. <clears throat> so that can't be the distinction. So my thesis is there is a, an intersection between the two, but I just wonder what you all think. No, I agree with you. It's a kind of lying, and the reason you use the term bullshit is to pick out the motivation. So it is a kind of lying, but it's a, cl- it's a, part, it's a special class of lying, and he's explained what kind of lying this is. You know, this distinction was drawn before Harry Frankfurt in The Blues Brothers. Now, if you know this movie, at the beginning of The Blues Brothers, Jake Elwood comes and picks up his... It's Jake and... Who's the other one? Whatever, Elwood. Elwood comes to pick up Jake from prison. Jake gets out of prison and says, We're putting the ba- you've been in touch with the guys from the band, right? He says, well, I had to lie to you. But I had to tell you I was in touch with them. It was the only thing to keep you going. He goes, you lied to me. I was in prison. You lied to me. He says, it wasn't lies. It was bullshit. Because he had, a, you know, he had another reason. So there's a special class. It's bullshit. Yeah, I agree with you completely. But it is lying, right? Yeah. Actually, the word bullshit, I think, was, uh, was first used in that sense by T.S. Eliot in relation to some poem. I don't know whether he... He probably wasn't talking about lying in that sense. I'm not quite sure. That was the, the one time T.S. Eliot was funny. 
Perhaps. <laughs> Alas, although I wish the clock would lie, it will not in this particular instance. So we must end. Um, and I'd like to thank you all very much for coming. Um, I should mention the next event in this series um, is on Wednesday, the 1st of May at 6.30, and it's at the LSE, um, and it's called In Search of Adventure with Stephen Rose, Hilary Lawson, and Barry C. Smith. And the How the Light Gets In Festival um, begins in the last week of May, and you can go on to the How the Light Gets In website and look at all the speakers who are on already on the program. Um, so thanks very much to our speakers, Jamie White, Hilary Lawson, and Barry.